Welcome to Engaging with Psychoanalysis. I'm Tom Schumann. I'm a mental health counselor interested in better understanding the theory, history, and practice of psychoanalysis. I aim to do so through discussions with practitioners, thinkers, educators, and others involved in the psychoanalytic tradition. If you're interested in being a guest on Engaging with Psychoanalysis, please email me at engagingwithpsychoanalysis at gmail.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. In this episode, I spoke with Dr. Donald L. Carveth about the therapeutic action of psychoanalysis. Dr. Carveth is an emeritus professor of sociology and social and political thought at York University in Toronto, where he taught for 46 years. Dr. Carveth underwent psychoanalytic training at the Toronto Institute of Psychoanalysis and has been practicing since 1984. He's worked as a training and supervising analyst, served as director for the Toronto Institute of Psychoanalysis, and was a co-founder of and editor-in-chief for the Canadian Journal of Psychoanalysis. If you'd like to hear more from Dr. Carveth, please check out his YouTube channel, link in the description. I go to it often, and I find it to be a great source of information on all topics related to psychoanalysis. Enjoy the interview focusing on the process of psychoanalysis um that is what kind of what brought us here today is uh, a discussion of the therapeutic action in psychoanalysis which uh i think is a really great first topic to kind of tackle on the show because uh somebody without much exposure to psychoanalysis outside of you know film or television i I think you know it's kind of mystifying like well what is it about this very non-directive usually uh mode of psychotherapy i think uh you know typically it, it tends other schools of thought in psychotherapy are able to kind of explain themselves very concisely and, um, you know, have for the past uh, couple decades really succeeded in marketing themselves. Um, but I think in, in most people's minds, how psychoanalysis works, it, it's, you know, it's kind of a mystery. I think we've done a bad job of um, explaining what it is we do. Um, I think we could do a concise explanation. Um, part of the reason that we haven't is that the field has been divided into many different schools of thought. Uh, and these schools of thought often have rather different understandings of what psychoanalysis is and how it works. I mean, the Freudians have their view, the Kleinians have their view, the followers of Heinz Kohut and self-psychology have their view, the relational psychoanalysts have their view, the Lacanians have their view, and therefore, how do you come up with uh, something that everyone will agree to? That, that, that's very difficult. Um, I have a particular view of what it is and how it works, and I think um, most Freudians, uh, people in the Freudian tradition, I think many Kleinians uh, would also agree. Uh, and, and the key article that describes this is uh, James Strachey, you know, who was the translator of, of uh, the 23 volumes of Freud's work. He was also an analyst himself. And I think it was in 1934 
1954 that he wrote a classic paper called The Therapeutic Action of Psychoanalysis. And I follow him very closely, although I have criticisms and modifications to make. But essentially, what he's saying there is that uh, the Freudians, uh, in their clinical work, they see the essence of psychopathology, the culprit is what Freud called the superego. Now, Freud had inconsistent views uh, about it because in his sociological works, he sort of saw the superego as a good cop uh, preventing us from being taken over by the id, the antisocial, sexual, and aggressive drives of the id and descending into barbarism. And, And that's a very conservative political work in which we need this internalized authority the superego to keep us from regressing into uh, the depraved and antisocial aspects of, a, of us. Uh, and that doesn't, that's completely inconsistent, really, that view. And actually, that's the best known view of what the superego is, kind of like an internalized cop. Um, it's, it's inconsistent with his clinical understanding that the superego is a bad cop, a corrupt cop, a sadistic cop, something more like a hanging judge. You know, it pretends to be concerned about morality, but it really doesn't give a damn about morality. It likes catching you in wrongdoing because then it gets to do what it really wants to do, which is to thrash you, to flog you. And therefore, uh, Freud, in his clinical work, discovers that nearly all psychopathology involves the sadistic superego. Whether we're talking about depression, what is depression? It is uh, id aggression taken over by the superego and turned against the ego. So in depression, I'm beating the hell out of myself. I'm channeling my aggression away from the people I'm really angry at because it's too dangerous to attack them directly. So I turn it around and I attack myself. Now I'm depressed. And, 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 and what is the essence of the depression? It's the superego whipping me. If I'm masochistic, I get other people to do the whipping, but I'm still whipping myself. Self-sabotage, the fear of success, getting wrecked by success clutching defeat from the jaws of victory, all of these neurotic patterns of self-harm all involve all involve the superego, which basically is composed of two elements, id aggression turned away from others back against myself, that's the real engine of it, but then secondarily, it's the internalization from the culture of the folkways, mores, and the laws that come in from society, And another of Freud's failures is that while he saw that this second layer of the superego is internalized from society, he didn't pay much attention to what that involves. Racism, sexism, heterosexism, classism, all of this crap, this antisocial stuff comes in from society. So... In one sense, Freud had things backwards. He thought that the antisocial came from the id, which he associated with the animal in us, and he thought that the good came in from society. It's the reverse. 
Our tendencies to be good, to be caring, to be altruistic, we share with our primate cousins. The animal in us is pretty good. The sadism comes in from the superego, so that it's, it's, it's society vis-a-vis uh, -vis the racism, sexism, all the ideology. That's what builds death camps. That, that's what drops bombs on civilian populations. I mean, you know, psychopathic people um, uh, do... Uh, most of the evil is not done by psychopaths. Robert, Robert Lifton did this study of the Nazi doctors. Most of them were not psychopaths. They were dedicated physicians. And like dedicated physicians, what you do is you cut out the cancer. Mm. But they were racist physicians, and the cancer in their minds was the Jews. Mm. So they were being good physicians getting rid of the disease, which was, in their crazy minds, the Jews. Mm. Okay, so <laughs> the people who do evil are, tend not to be psychopathic acting out their id. They tend to be following superego ideologies of various kinds. Now, in his clinical work, Freud knew this. And so in one of his papers, he said the goal of psychoanalysis is demolition, that is his word, demolition of the superego. The superego is the therapist's enemy. And Freud, Freud that's a quote by Freud. That's yes. A, wow. All right. Demolition of the superego. Now, Sandor Ferenczi and Franz Alexander both agreed. Uh, Ferenczi wrote that there is no complete analysis until we have achieved the, quotes, complete elimination of the superego. Mm -hmm. They wanted to hand over the moral function to the rational ego. Here is where I disagree with them, because the ego cannot serve, in my opinion, it cannot serve as a moral compass because like science it can tell us what is it can't tell us what ought to be and if it's okay to kind of cut in for a second yeah um when we talk about the ego i think that of the id ego super ego is sometimes the hardest to wrap one's head around if without a uh without a more in-depth uh introduction to psychoanalysis because it is used sometimes as a synonym for self yes um and then also sometimes as more this just kind of component that uh modulates between the superego and the id right um and, and well yeah so i'm wondering if uh, if we could kind of demystify that a little bit while kind of following this thread well, I think, I think you've said it. The term is used in these two ways. Sometimes it simply means the self. So when I say um, the id aggression is taken over by the superego and turned against the ego, I could equally say turned against the self. Yeah. So I'm using ego there as me, and I'm getting beaten up by my superego. Okay? Uh, that's ego. But I also use ego, I think of ego as Freud did, also as the rational center of the personality. Its main function is reality testing. Mm -hmm. Its job is to discriminate between what's real and what's illusion or delusion. Um, and uh, my point was that uh, Freud, Ferenczi, Alexander, they all thought that the moral function could be taken away, the superego could be demolished, and the moral function handed over to the rational ego. 
-hmm. But it can't. It, that will not work because the ego, as science, as reality testing, it, it, it can tell you what is. It can't tell you what ought to be. Mm. Therefore, that handover of the moral function from superego to ego, I believe, cannot work. And I don't believe that psychoanalysts have understood that correctly. But I mean, it's, in the 18th century, the philosopher David Hume explained very clearly that you cannot deduce an ought from an is. And the ego is about what is. It's not about what ought to be. So we need another center for morality, and my work over the last um, 15 or 20 years has been a plea to psychoanalysts to reverse Freud's <clears throat> decision in 1923 to fold conscience into superego. I believe that was a disaster. We need to make the distinction once again between superego, which I agree does need to be demolished or at least disempowered. I've become a little more moderate. I don't think we can ever get rid of it altogether. We need law. We need to know the rules, certainly. But it's power. It's kind of like defund the police, okay? We, well, I don't want to get rid of the police altogether, but let's defund them to a considerable degree and hand over that energy from the superego to the conscience. And the conscience is a function that has biological roots because, as I say, we share conscience with our primate cousins. But as symboling animals, we have a much more elaborate understanding of conscience. But it does have primate roots. After all, the essence of conscience comes with attachment. Hmm. The baby gets attached, as John Bowlby explained, to the primary caretaker and it is receiving the protection and the love of the primary caretaker, and the law of reciprocity kicks in, and the baby's trying to feed mommy back. I mean, he's at her breast, but he's putting his fingers in her mouth. Later, she's spooning food to him, and he's spooning food back to her. We receive love, we feel compelled to give it back, that's the essence of conscience. It's grounded in attachment. And it's a separate function of the mind from the superego. So, so we need to disempower the superego. And we need to help build up the conscience, which is also connected to what Winnicott called the true self. Uh, so, so much of our work, people come in, they have all kinds of problems. They have inhibitions. They, they, they can't get angry, although they really are angry, but they just don't want to know it. They're having anxiety attacks. They're in one uh, uh, painful relationship after another. Um, they cap and limit their success, or they outright sabotage themselves in their work. This is all the superego's activity. We draw the patient's attention to this, we help them become aware of the sadism and the destructiveness that's at work in their superego. Um, we help them learn how to defend themselves against the superego. Strachey's paper was all about modification of the superego. He was more liberal, I'm more radical. Freud was more radical. Freud said, demolish it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that the patient and the analyst operate like a revolutionary cell. The person is under a tyranny. The patient is under a tyranny. He's being tyrannized 
and often terrorized by his superego. And uh, he forms an ally with the analyst. And together they plot to overthrow the tyrant. So, so how, I mean, implicit in that is an installation of a new governing body, the conscience. Um, how, how does, how is the conscience uh, empowered uh, and given supremacy over the superego? What, what is the therapeutic method uh, by which that's accomplished? Um, okay, let me, let me just briefly turn to Freud's dual drive theory. I mean, Eros Thanatos, I've never accepted the death drive. Um, okay. Uh, but but I do accept Eric Fromm's revision, biophilia, necrophilia. Necrophilia is not like a death drive, because the death drive for Freud was natural and universal. For, for Fromm, biophilia is the love of life. Uh, necrophilia is the love of death, but, but that's a perversion of the life drive. It's a pathology. You see, Freud did not call Thanatos a pathology. He thought it was a universal element of human nature. For Fromm, biophilia is a universal life drive, but due to blockages and traumas and so on in childhood, sometimes the life drive is blocked and people develop instead a love of death. Um, And that's a pathology. Um, and the superego is, is often loaded with this destructiveness. Um, so, so what I'm trying to say is that to de- developing one's conscience is the same thing as developing one's capacity to love. Hmm. Okay, here's a quick definition of, of how mental health differs from mental ill health. Uh, mental ill health means that your hating is stronger than your loving. Hmm. If through therapy you get healthy, your loving will become stronger than your hating. And the more you love life and other people and your true self, the healthier you are. So getting healthy is all about loving. So... I guess uh, where my mind goes with that is uh, because hating, uh, an aggressive feeling, is something that the superego would try to disown, disavow, turn towards the self any number of ways. Um, Or towards scapegoats. Yeah. So how does that how does that get resolved? I mean, because they, it sounds like there would have to be some kind of recognition of uh, hating and oh, uh, definitely yeah. one has to in earlier stages of the therapy. Patient is full of hate. You're helping them understand that they are full of hate. I mean, look, I get a lot of businessmen, very civilized, successful, civil guys, and they're having panic attacks mm-hmm. in the corporate towers. They, have, they don't even have a clue that they're angry. But it turns out that the panic attack, nine times out of ten, the panic attack is because the anger is rising. Mm. And it's like a volcano that is about to erupt. And they are panicking because they don't want to be angry. 
Yeah. They don't even know that they're angry. Okay, so you help them understand that they are angry. And you help them learn how to let their anger come into their minds without acting it out. You teach them, you can murder someone in your mind, and nothing happens to the person. Hmm. There's no magical connection between a murderous thought and a murderous deed. Gradually, they start letting themselves see how murderous they are how enraged they are, and they start to learn how to tolerate those feelings without acting them out, either against others or against themselves. This tames the anger. The anger calms down because it is given a discharge through the mind and through fantasy mm. without going into action. So now the anger is going down, and as the anger goes down, the loving feelings tend to come up. So if we were to kind of personify the superego and the conscience with regard to the hating, the anger, the conscience, uh, the superego might say, no, you're, you're not entitled to that. You're not, uh, you shouldn't feel that. We, we need to hide that or turn it inward. Uh, whereas the conscience might say, yes, that's fine. Um, that Just has don't hurt anyone. Just don't yeah. hurt anyone and stop hurting yourself. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> I mean, in church a few years ago, they kind of realized that uh, the church was a good therapy for narcissistic men mm. because it's all about, you know, trying to be kind to others. And then they realized that many of the women in church were suffering because they're always so busy doing for others, they're not looking after themselves properly. So, so some of the churches started saying to women, listen, you do not own yourselves, you're God's property, and you must not allow God's property to be abused. Hmm. So you must not allow yourself to be abused. Yeah. Uh, okay, um, uh, so conscience is saying to us, um, stop abusing yourself. Hmm. You know, you're doing the abuser's work for him. He may be in his grave, the guy who abused you when you were a kid, but you're carrying on his work. Cut it out. Yeah. So that is accomplished in psychoanalytic therapy by creating insight around the punitive functions of the superego. Exactly. Look how you are dumping the anger that you're afraid to express to your husband. Look how you're dumping it on yourself. That's your migraines. Hmm. Um, uh, learn how to own the anger. Um, learn how to now use the anger to uh, help you find the assertiveness to stand up for yourself. Um, to protect yourself, uh, to extricate yourself, if need be, to, or to push back to the point where he changes or allows you to assert yourself to go to the lawyer, uh, start looking after yourself. 
I mean, that, that, that ability to look after yourself, uh, that comes from loving yourself better, seeing yourself as worth looking after, and finding the energy, the aggressive energy, to proceed to look after yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what we're trying to help people achieve. Now, in that example, the anger is towards someone currently existing, present, but often people's anger is towards past experiences, people who might not be with them anymore, um, and, and kind of the action of loving oneself, which otherwise might mean you know, removing yourself from that situation, it's not so clear what that, what that entails. Those people are still with him in his head. Mm. So this is, we help them understand that although the father who abused you or the mother who abandoned you has long been dead, the point is that father and mother are alive and well inside your head. Mm. And you are still obeying them or you are still being hurt by them. So these are introjects. These are in, internalized or introjected objects. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they take over. Like sometimes um, the person uh, um, who often feels like the victim of attack or abandonment, they become attackers or abandoners of others. Forget doing it to themselves. They do it to themselves. They attack and they abandon themselves. But sometimes they attack and abandon other people who stand for them, but they become the attacking father or the abandoning mother. These are these crazy moods that they get into, and they do to others what was done to them. Often, sadly, it's to their own kids. And we help them see that they are taken over by an introject. It's almost like an exorcism is necessary, right? I mean, uh, metaphorically speaking, because they've got this introjected crazy mother, and every once in a while they become her. Well, they have to understand what's going on there. And when the mood starts to take them over, they have to learn how to say, no, no, I'm not going to be her. This is not me. This is my mother inside me at the moment that's making me do these crazy things, and I'm, I'm going to stop this. Now, this takes a long time with the analyst's help to see this and gradually acquire the ability to stop it. So there's, there is a little bit of a similarity with the uh, analysts who would you know, who would think to give uh, supremacy to the ego in that you, but, but, but it's kind of, it's also categorically different, but it's um, kind of bringing more conscious control. Oh, definitely. That part of ego psychology, I have no problem with that at all. Where it was and where superego was and where the introjects were, there shall ego be in the sense of 
making the unconscious conscious. I'm completely, and the whole theory of ego defense mechanisms, working with the defenses, the whole idea of analyzing the resistances, I'm on board with all that. Now, you know, and this might be a bit of an aside, but because the superego is an internalization of uh, perhaps a punitive or repressive society, do more egalitarian, uh, less punitive societies, I'm I'm thinking, uh, you know, some of the hunter-gatherers in South Africa. Um, uh, is there a lack of superego, or is it just a, a, perhaps a less harsh superego? Did, did, did Freud, and do you think the superego is universal to uh, human experience? I believe it's universal as a structure, Mm-hmm. But it varies widely in terms of its content. Mm. So um, I think all societies will generate superegos because all societies will generate rules. Uh, all societies are going to socialize or acculturate their children. But, but what are they being socialized into? Are they being into socialized into a, a society... Well, look at uh, Eric Erickson in one of the first chapters of his famous Childhood in Society. Um, he pointed out how um, in Western society we have all this cleanliness thing, and so often there's early or uh, anal training, to- uh, toilet training. We make a big deal about wanting kids to learn how to be clean and not dirty. And the result of this is a certain tendency towards obsessive-compulsiveness around cleanliness and orderliness. Um, And that has to do with our culture's preoccupation with, with, with the need for kids to learn how to become clean. Okay, now there's another culture, I think it's the Yurok, uh, that he describes. They don't toilet train their kids. They just let their kids come to toilet train themselves. The kids start noticing that adults go off into the bush to poo, and pretty soon they learn how to do that, but no one pressures them. No one cares how long it takes. They just let it, let it happen. Now, that's very liberating, but it turns out that the Yurok also show obsessional, obsessional traits, not coming from pressure to toilet train, but they have all kinds of taboos around eating. How you eat, when you eat, where you eat, with whom you eat. There's all these million rules. And, and so they've got a superego that's all screwed up about eating, not about pooping. Um, so I, I think we always get a superego. Um, but its content varies. Yeah, yeah. And... Hmm. The... Super ego and the conscience both act on the ego. They both mm-hmm. inform and correct the ego. Am I understanding that right? Correct. The big difference being the super ego likes to whip, the conscience likes to call 
uh, although the conscience has a bite. We refer to the bite of conscience. It keeps calling, Don, you know what you're doing isn't right. Um, but, you know, it's not screaming at me. It's not sadistic, but it's persistent. Um, and uh, if it succeeds in getting my attention and I turn away from wrong and turn towards right, it is delighted. This is the story of the prodigal son. The father is so delighted that the prodigal son is returning he doesn't care that for years he's been blowing all of his inheritance on whores and whatever, you know. He doesn't. He's just so delighted to have his son back. Hmm. It's welcoming. The conscience is calling us. It's welcoming, but it's also got a bite and it's persistent. And you're not sleeping well if you're out of sync with your conscience. Superego just wants to kick the hell out of you. Yeah. And you had mentioned that Freud kind of recognized this in his clinical work, but in his sociological work, he, he, he kind of, you know, perhaps praised the superego as the civilizing force. Because he changed his mind the way so many people do who are radicals when they're young and become reactionaries when they're old. Mm -hmm. See, uh, he changed his mind about the unconscious. In his great early work on dreams and slips and jokes, he understood that the, con the, the, that the unconscious was orderly. Mm. He described the lawfulness of it, the laws of what he called the primary process, condensation, displacement, etc. The five mechanisms, these are the five laws, these are the structures of the unconscious. It's like Jacques Lacan says the unconscious is structured like a language. Everyone thinks he says it was, structured, it was a language. No, he said it's structured like a language. Mm. Okay, that's just Freud. Freud is saying the unconscious is structured, okay? But that's 1900. By 1923, he describes the id, i.e. the unconscious, as a chaos, a cauldron of seething instinctual drives. A cauldron is that big metal pot witches put frogs and snakes and insects, and it's seething, and it's poisonous. Was the id always synonymous with the unconscious or and if that's the case did he originally see the id as orderly no no the id the, well first of all the id doesn't come in until i mean initially he's working just with the idea of the unconscious uh the id comes in much later along with ego and superego uh, there is more to the unconscious than the id. You're right, there's an unconscious portion of the ego. That's where the defense mechanisms are operating, unconsciously in the ego. And there's an unconscious portion of the superego. There's a difference between our, our conscious rules and our unconscious rules. So the unconscious is wider than the id. But uh, when Freud is talking about the, the main body of the unconscious, he's talking about the id. Previously, he, he didn't have the concept of the id. but he So with that proviso, uh, and I think it's really a minor proviso, 
he really has changed his mind about the nature of the unconscious. He's really primitivized the unconscious um, and made it dangerous and antisocial. You see, originally the unconscious was not intrinsically antisocial. So, so as he's come to see it as dangerously antisocial, he's moved more and more to celebrating the superego and the ego defenses, which protect us against this beastly id. Mm-hmm. Does the id have... Qual- I, I mean, I, I guess... Does the id have qualities of uh, of loving and affinity at all? Because it, it works on the pleasure principle. Uh, those are things that bring one pleasure. Yeah, uh, but so does uh, cutting your enemy's throat. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but I think you're right. Because you see, one of the things that the id means for Freud is the instinctual. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you need to bring John Bowlby in, because Bowlby says a big part of the instinctual is attachment. Mm -hmm. Like other primates, we come into the world with an unlearned, automatic, innate, instinctual need to attach. And we fall in love with the attachment figures, and... They give us love, and we give love back. Uh, So that would be a revised understanding of the id. This is post-Freudian, right? Now we're expanding the id to include attachment theory. Oh, wow. Wow. It's fascinating. Uh, Dr. Carveth, would you mind if we took a two-minute intermission? Uh, Sure. Let's do that. I'll be right back. Okay. Um, so to kind of, well, you know, I, I, while I was away, uh, a question occurred to me, but I, I, I'm wondering if there's anything, uh, we should kind of continue on with in that, in that specific line of thought. Well, I just wanted to, to add that, uh, theory of, uh, the therapeutic, um, process is superego modification. Okay, so he, he was in line with Freud, Ferenczi, Alexander, me, that, that the superego is the root of the problem. Uh, but being sort of more of a liberal than a radical, instead of talking about its demolition, he started talking about its modulation or modification, taking a harsh superego and sort of turning it into a more tolerant, um, and uh, liberal superego. That was the aim. Uh, analogous to piecemeal social reform rather than revolution, really. And, of course, the field followed Strachey instead of Freud, Ferenczi, and Alexander. Um, and mainstream psychoanalytic thinkers are very resistant to my call 
although I'm getting some support here and there these days, but they're resistant to my call to undo Freud's decision to fold conscience into superego and to separate conscience out as a separate structure. They're resistant. They're sort of saying, well, look, superego modification is a more reasonable goal and we prefer Strachey, thanks very much. But what they fail to understand is that in order to follow Strachey, and make your goal superego modification, how do you know in what ways it needs modifying? Without, without it being directed by the conscience. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, it's interesting because, yeah, how do you know otherwise unless there was some kind of, like, didactic moral instruction? Um, right. Whereas you're saying that's not necessary, there, there is something like an inbuilt, loosely moral compass in that there's in that it's governed by love and affection, affinity, respect for others. Even in psychopaths, uh, psychopaths, um, it's not that they don't have a conscience. It's that they are very talented at burying it and not hearing it. Uh, I've worked with some psychopaths who uh, various events led to the point where suddenly their defenses broke down and both the superego, their defenses against the superego and against the conscience, the defenses broke down. And suddenly, the well, in both cases, there were suicide attempts. Uh, uh, but generally speaking, they are very talented at silencing it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It's, it hasn't been allowed to develop, um, uh, but, but it's there. What would the unconscious motivation for silencing the conscience be? Oh, well, uh, malignant narcissism, they want what they want when they want it. And uh, they don't want to be troubled by either rules or the voice of conscience. I, 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 it's all about me, and it's all about what I want. I mean, most psychopaths are not necessarily killers. There are psychopathic killers and, and sadistic, sexually sadistic psychopaths, but most psychopaths really don't want to be killing people. They just want all the money. If you get in their way, they'll kill you. Mm -hmm. But they're not out to kill you necessarily, unless you become an obstacle. Um, so that's their desire, is pure self-interestedness. So that would be a form of pathology that's more based on, if I'm understanding correctly, on the supremacy of the id, that it's all about, self, it's all about gratification, rather than uh, an overly punitive superego. They, they probably have a very overly punitive superego, but they've buried it. Mm. And if it comes up from the crypt, it will kill them. Mm. That's why they don't let it come up from the crypt. So it, it kind of uh, it follows this, that same trend of other pathologies and that it, it begins with an overly punitive superego. Uh, I would say, well, Freud himself was always talking about how superego and id are close allied because the superego is fueled by the id. Mm. 
by it hate, right? So I, I think I think there's some kind of unholy alliance or connection uh, there in psychopathy. But the superego is involved. That's for sure. Um, I don't know that the superego would be the cause. I think the cause is the malignant narcissism. I mean, these people have usually been traumatized, abandoned, and abused, and uh, decided that uh, they're not going to care for anything except for themselves. Um, they've been injured, and um, that their determination to look after themselves is much stronger than the voice of superego or conscience. If it's okay to get a little tangential, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, when approaching psychoanalysis, I had mentioned that self becomes a very complicated concept, and so does narcissism. Because um, mm-hmm. coming from, you know, how other schools of uh, psychotherapy are taught today and how just, you know, a general education in the United States, uh, you know, a a bachelor's in psychology, a master's in some uh, uh, clinical field, um, your exposure to narcissism, just like your exposure to other pathologies, is very... It's it's a checklist. It's uh, it's very DSM. It's not a very rich or thoughtful definition. Um, but narcissism plays. You know, it has this rich, rich history of discussion in psychoanalysis that is bewildering. <laughs> yeah. And um, and then because self is such an important concept in narcissism, as well as uh, other areas of personality organization, other uh, topics in per- around personality organization. It, it, I mean, when, uh, for, you know, still, I'm kind of like, well, what, what, exactly, what exactly does this theorist or that theorist mean when they say self? And yeah. On to- yeah. No, it's a very confusing area, but it's a shame that it's so confusing because it's really, well, the way I look at it is very simple. Um, And actually, people should have just followed Freud's 1914 essay on narcissism, where it becomes quite simple. He himself gets it, starts to make it very complicated later on. But in that paper, he distinguishes really between um, narcissism and object love, and and he's saying that uh, unless we unless we learn to love, we will fall ill, and we must fall ill if we cannot love. So narcissism is a failure to love others. Now you can say that the narcissist doesn't love others because he can only love himself, but of course this is not genuine love. Uh, narcissistic love is not genuine love at all. And in, in fact, the narcissist, uh, his, his narcissistic self-love is the love of a false self. It's because he can't love himself that he has become so narcissistic. I mean, people who genuinely love their true selves love others. Mm. Okay, but if, if you're so full of self-hate uh, that you can't love yourself... Then you generate a false self, which is all about images, a big image of yourself, 
and you're busy polishing your image all the time, and you're not able to love other people. You're too busy polishing yourself. Why? Because basically you hate yourself. You can't. You don't want to know about that. You generate this false image. You're obsessed with polishing the image. You have no time to think about other people. You have no time for empathy. Um, so narcissism is self-obsession. And depressed people are narcissistic people, which is why we hate being around depressed people, because it's all about them. And then there are the Trump types, the grandiose narcissists, it's all about them. But it doesn't matter whether you're grandiose and manic, or whether you're depressed, it doesn't matter. You're equally narcissistic. It's still all about you. Do you ever give a thought to other people? Can you even recognize that other people are real? I mean, can you tolerate another person being different from you? Mm. I mean, so that's a pretty simple understanding of what narcissism is. So to get to that, to object love, to sincere love for the other, or a sincere appreciation for the other, um, one has to get over or bypass love for the false self but there is a necessity for love for a true self yes and what is what is that true self well the true self i think i wish he'd done a better job of it but winnicott associated the true self with the infants quotes going on being unquote now that should not be confused with its merely biological, somato-biological going-on-being. That's not what he meant. What he meant by the child's going-on-being is the child who is playing on the carpet and mother is not intruding and she's not abandoning. She's sitting there with her iPad, whatever, or knitting or a book, whatever, and he, he, he's so secure that he loses himself. Hmm. He forgets himself. Um, and then he wakes up with a start, a little bit of anxiety. He looks up. There she is. Oh, he might go over and lean against her and then slide back down and lose himself again. You see, he doesn't have to manage himself. He, he's not self-conscious. So the it's yeah it's confusing because uh, so the 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 true self the self that exists in those kind of flow experiences of, but where there is the secure attachment um, it's not self reflective it's not precisely it, so how is you know love invested in in something that um, we kind of lose awareness of when we embody it. Well, but, th- but this, is, this is where we go. This, this is Zen Buddhism. Okay? Like, they point out that uh, you cannot shoot the arrow and watch yourself shoot the arrow at the same time. Mm-hmm. The watching of yourself shoot the arrow interferes with the shooting of the arrow. It's the same thing with love. In order to love, you don't need to watch yourself loving. Self-reflection is unnecessary to love. Mm. You just love. Which means you love her smell. You love her touch. You love her look. 
you're just wanting more of that. Yeah. And and there's no it's not about self reflection. Spontaneity, it's the same thing with music. See, when a band is in the groove, now they take a lot of practice, and self-consciousness is necessary to learn the instruments and everything else, but then someday, one day they're playing, and suddenly they're in the groove. And it only lasts a few seconds, and then it's gone, and then they laugh. Mm. They're laughing because they knew they were in the groove. And wasn't that great? They found the God spot, but it was a gift. I mean, you can't make that happen. Yeah. So that's spontaneity. Winnicott is good on the spontaneous, creative gesture that comes out of the true self. But unfortunately, um, the intrusiveness of the mother and the abandonment of the mother forces the kid to become self-conscious and to start managing himself. And he loses touch with his simple capacity to be. And in a good analysis, a deep analysis, the patient recovers increasingly the capacity to be and be free and freely associate. And the self-consciousness doesn't disappear. We need it, but it greatly diminishes. And, and the person moves closer and closer to, to their true self. And um, they, their, 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 their relationships become truer. Their work becomes truer. Their creativity becomes truer. They have less patience with, with, with a false self. They have less need to hide and wear a mask. Mm. I mean, it, it sometimes becomes a little dangerous. Like I... I get into trouble uh, because I walk around pretty much being my true self most of the time and saying what I think pretty directly. And um, sometimes I'm not, I get into trouble with the social justice warriors and the politically correct, both the totalitarians of both the left and the right who want me to shut up. <laughs> they want me to be crushed by my superego. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, but I mean, I've had years of analysis, and I'm old, and I'm unafraid, and so I, I'm. this is who I am. You know, now that, that's kind of like what we want our patients to become. We want them to become free, which is actually a very old psychoanalytic ideal. You know, we want to free patients from symptoms inhibitions and anxiety but people like that um, are often um, regarded as dangerous by the society you might you might become an Edward Snowden mm-hmm. yeah or uh, I mean yeah I, I or Martin Luther King so that kind exactly. of yeah that kind of it does seem like that... Contrast. But you know what happens to people? I mean, or Jesus Christ, he got yeah. nailed to a cross. There's, there does seem to be something very threatening about uh, that the, uh, loving action, uh, uh, behavior-based coming from, the, you know, uh, what you're uh, describing as the conscience. Yeah, you might decide to take a, take a knee at an NFL game. I, you know, 
it makes me it, it makes it, one of the the things one of the sources where I first kind of my interest in uh, psychoanalytic thought was really was picked was um, was coming into contact with the writing of uh, Christopher Lash. Ah, cultural narcissism. Yeah, yeah, and the role of self-evaluation in mm-hmm. narcissism. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that certain kind of certain trends in uh, in our society where that are, where there does seem to be a, a, a push towards on, again on you know both ends of the uh, social political spectrum uh, towards like punitive uh, moralistic thinking that um, there is you know that uh, these pathologies born of an overly punitive superego might become you know become more of a problem uh, on a large scale yeah uh, definitely um, so look, I work with Kleinian theory, and in Kleinian theory you have these two positions, the more primitive paranoid schizoid position and the more advanced depressive reparative position. So in the more primitive paranoid schizoid position, everything is split, splitting, all good, all bad. The move into the reparative position is the overcoming of splitting and the achievement of Ambivalence. Now, democracy requires, it can only exist in the depressive position. People have to have been able to overcome splitting. Uh, when, a, when democracy is breaking down, as it has in the United States, um, there's a massive regression in the U.S. to the paranoid schizoid position, which happens in all societies where democracy is breaking down. Everything becomes radically polarized so that families can't even have a Thanksgiving dinner in America because some the Democrats can't talk to the Republicans and vice versa. The society is so polarized. This is what happened in Weimar, Germany, and out of that Hitler emerged. Out of this split, Trump emerges. Um, I think America is in great danger. And, uh, and it's not the only society. This is happening uh, kind of worldwide, and um, democracy is in danger all over the place. Um, what's the real cause of this, though? Late capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, has had, uh, and, and of course there's another split between the less than 1% who have all of the wealth and the 99% who don't, another split, the middle class is disappearing. With the disappearance of the middle class, there's the disappearance of democracy. Um, so I think we're in trouble. And in you know, in a uh, society in that situation, and then accelerating towards further further into that situation, um, one might expect, kind of, as, as we said a few moments ago, that if they were to try to embody a uh, conscience-based, loving way of uh, engaging with themselves and others, that 
there could be a reasonable expectation of being slapped down. Yes. And if, if that is, if that is how one conceptualize mental health, it's it would almost be, you know, there there would almost have to be a warning of become mentally healthy at your own peril. I think this has always been true. Um, I think this has always been true. Um, uh, well, you know, listen, I, I identify with the Christian tradition, and um, I don't know who it was, but someone said, um, you know, it's if you choose as your leader this guy who got crucified, chances are that might happen to you too. Hmm. And, and, and um, that is what often happens to people who tell the truth and seek to do what's right. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, poor uh, Assange is going to wind up... Uh, uh, but, but, see... Uh, I don't think there's any other way uh, because I don't think the other approaches to change are successful. If the revolution is motivated by hate and anger, however justified, the leaders of the revolution, when they take power, are going to become totalitarian and undermine the revolution. So I've always been a Christian socialist or a Christian anarchist. because to me, it seems to me that, that if there's any hope of, the, of, of, of successful revolutionaries proceeding to create a good society, I mean, if you have to use deceit and violence and terror to win the revolution, chances are that that's going to carry on. Uh, whereas the power of a Martin Luther King... Um, I don't know whether Ed Snowden has uh, has has encouraged a lot of people, but boy, uh, he's one of my heroes. Um, uh, Julian Assange is one of my heroes. Um, People people who live that way can have a powerful, inspiring effect. Yeah, and I wonder if. Part of the benefit of enriching one's conscience is to be able to bear bear it when uh, when you are slapped down. Well, that's ex- that, a central part of the Christian tradition. Says exactly that. Uh, if if I'm at peace with my conscience, um, death. Where is thy sting? Mm. I mean, it's a matter of, uh, th- those, those guys walked into the Colosseum with the lions, you know, um, and they were torn to bits. Um, but, now, of course, this can easily stray into a kind of fanatical ideology. I mean, the guys who flew the planes into the World Trade Center also thought they had God on their side. And I'm sure the guys who dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, maybe they thought they had God on their side too. So I'm not at all saying that the, the, the believing that you have God on your side is always correct. By no means is it correct. It's often a fuel for fanaticism. 
So we got, we got to make a big distinction between a belief that you are doing right from whether you really are doing right. Mm. And that is a major uh, problem of discernment because ideology takes over our minds. And I mean, I, w- I would also imagine because even even though there is this uh, compulsion towards acting, I, I keep using the word acting lovingly. I hope that's uh, accurate enough to what you're getting at. But yeah. Even if the conscious compels us to do that, it doesn't have it does it doesn't really have the self-reflective features of the ego. Oh well, um, well, that's why we need the ego. But the ego is like an instrument. The ego is like a computer. Mm-hmm. Okay, if you sit down motivated by love, well, use your computer to help figure out what you ought to do and what the likely consequences. Predict the likely. Use science to predict the likely consequences of line of action A as opposed to line of action B. We certainly need the ego. We certainly need rationality. Yeah, and 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 that as well is hijacked by ideology. Absolutely. I mean, the guys who design the bombs, uh, you know, are high ego functioning scientists and technologists. Yeah. Uh, this, you know, this has been incredibly fascinating. I, I one of the things that kind of keeps me coming back to your videos is the the is that there does seem to be a place where psychoanalytic thinking terminates in the way that in the way that you phrase it of well no it, it, it it's life affirming it doesn't uh it doesn't have to kind of end at this uh at this trying to create um normal misery is that is that the Freud quote to try to get neurotic misery down yeah. to normal misery yeah he words it uh, you will be able to convince yourself that much will have been accomplished if we can convert your hysterical misery into ordinary human unhappiness <laughs> yeah yeah whoop de doo this is I mean it's beautifully worded I mean the guy could write you know uh, but it's very unsatisfactory I'm not happy uh, helping people uh, I, I want people to be able to find joy, I, not walk around in permanent bliss. Who does? But to be have a, a capacity from time to time to experience joy. But even more than that is peace. Like I'm Anglican, and I, I like the fact that in the service many years ago they started including the peace in the middle of the ser- of the service. You turn around and you shake the hands of the people around you. And you say, the peace of the Lord be with you. Peace. Just think of the peace. And there's that passage in the New Testament uh, where, where we refer to the peace that passeth all understanding. What a phrase. The peace that passeth all understanding. Well, just, just think of peace. That's a goal for psychoanalytic treatment, to be able to sit in the sun on your back porch and feel thankful that you're still on this side of the grass and that the sun is out and you can feel it on your face and you can just be. I mean, the, the capacity to be is something that a good, deep, successful psychoanalytic uh, therapy, uh, which, which people can't be. They're running around. They're doing this. They're doing that. They can't sit still. 
in today's society, but to learn how to sit still, be able to sit still, well, of course, you've got to be at peace with your conscience. You have to, you have to genuinely like yourself by being likable. Like, I, I, you know, I started with a guy who, you know, he told me how he was currently living with a married woman, and he had his eyes and designs on another woman who happened to be married, and then he complained about his depression, and then he sort of said, you know, he has trouble, you know, sitting still, He just because he doesn't think he really likes himself. I said to him, what's to like? Mm. I mean, I knew he was a thick-skinned narcissist, not mm. a thin-skinned, so he wasn't going to bolt out of my office. I knew, what? What, what? what do you mean? You know, he says. So I explained to him, if you want to be able to have peace, you have to be able to like yourself. You don't, because your behavior is not very likable. If you want to like yourself, you have to become likable, duh. <laughs> okay, so, you know, let's figure out how we can work together to help you become a more likable man. Then you might like yourself. Then you won't have the depression. Then you won't have to be drinking yourself silly all the time. But more and more uh, in today's therapeutic culture, people are instructed to sit with themselves, to sit with their experience without addressing that they, they might be sitting with some really unpleasant aspects of themselves or some really intolerable aspects of themselves. Correct. And therefore, perhaps not really sitting with themselves because exactly or not liking the person they're sitting with they've got if they've got work to do to change their behavior make themselves more genuinely likable and then they can sit with a likable person and they can sit there liking themselves and feeling peace so peace would be would, would kind of be the the, the real way that uh, mental health is conceptualized in your approach to psychoanalysis. Well, now I have to qualify that because, <laughs> uh, because, because yeah, peace is a wonderful thing and it is definitely a goal, but there are things that we ought to allow to interrupt our peace. I'm not just sitting on the backyard enjoying my peace when uh, racism is rampant when sexism and heterosexism and classism are rampant, I'm going to get off my backyard and go to the protest. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we don't want to celebrate peace to the point where we become apolitical, Om. meanwhile injustice is spreading through the world. No, that's mm -hmm. not what we mean by a valid sense of peace. So momentary peace might be a nice epiphenomena to the uh, to the actual goal which is to be able to kind of be at peace with yourself yeah yeah and and and, and to, to know what's right and wrong for yourself but also to know you know to have a sense of what's right and wrong in the world at large and to work for the right and to work against the wrong I mean that's what we're here for to try to uh, bring about a better, more just, more loving world. Um, but when I go to the protest, I'm not smashing and burning things. Yeah. 
you know, um, pull it, pull, pulling back from psychoanalysis into the larger world of, of psychotherapy, uh, I, I think something that is uh, a kind of a conflict during training and coming into contact with uh, different theories and different ethical questions is what is the role of morality in in therapy when is it when do you intervene uh if if someone's behaving immorally when do you or do you adopt a stance of moral relativism no you definitely don't do that uh, no, but you're, you're quite right. It's a very tricky, technical question how to intervene. So let me answer by just telling you a story about the patient who was always telling me how he loved to steal books from the university library and from the university bookstore. And um, so one day I was making some other point. I wasn't trying to make an interpretation or anything, but I said, well, I, was, I said, as a thief, you would understand that. A, he said, thief? Hmm. My therapist called me a thief. I said, well, I think doesn't he acknowledge the definition did apply to him? But that's not really the point of my story. The point of the story is how did I help him change? not by calling him a thief. I, I helped him change by pointing out to him how he could never hold on to any ill-gotten gains. Any money he made illegally, he managed to either gamble it away, or he, he lost it on poor investments, or he had it pickpocketed from him, or he lost it. He couldn't hold on to it. Uh, money that he made legitimately, he held on to. And so I was able to help him see that there was something inside him, not in me, his therapy, a therapist, I'm not the moralist. He has a moralist inside him that clearly disapproved of this money because he could never hold on to it. Yeah. Or, or, or I will point out to a patient, you know, um, her husband hasn't had intercourse with her for 10 years, and so she takes a lover. And she thinks she's entirely justified uh, uh, in this. And um, I, I don't moralize about it with her, but I just point out that, you know, every time she sees the lover, she goes into a severe migraine that lasts several days. See, you kind of bring people bring people's attention to their own internal morality. Correct. Yeah. Because they love, you see, if you stray into being super ego-ish with them, they are greatly relieved because they don't have to deal with their own super ego now. Now they get to complain about their moralistic therapist. Mm. Mm. Yeah. There's a lot to think about on this. I find it really compelling and uh, really fascinating. I think, I, 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 you know, out of respect for your time, uh, I, I think I'm going to shift towards wrapping up. Uh, I'm wondering, okay. because, the, you know, this program is meant for people who don't really have a background in psychoanalysis but are, are – interested in it and perhaps frustrated by kind of how it can seem impenetrable. I'm wondering um, 
what you would like to say to, you know, that hypothetical listener. I mean, I would tell them to check out your videos. I think that's a great way to start. That's, uh, that's my go-to. Um, but yeah, I'm wondering what your thoughts on that would be. I wish I could point to uh, a particular well-written, down-to-earth book that would, uh, but I don't know of any such book that satisfies my criteria for what it, such an introductory text would uh, would look like. So I would say, yeah, start start with my videos. Um, uh, the one on defense mechanisms might be a good place to start. The one about anxiety. The one about depression. Uh, I think you get a pretty good idea uh, there. Um, gee, if I can think of a better introductory text, I'll let you know. All right. And uh, if it's all right with you, I think I'm going to link to your YouTube channel in the description for, uh, for this episode. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on. This has been uh, a really wonderful conversation. Tom, I've really enjoyed myself here. Thanks for reaching out to me. And listen, anytime, you, uh, anytime you'd like to come back on, you're absolutely welcome. I'll drop you an email if, I'm, uh, if I think of a topic that I think might be juicy for us. <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. I'm going uh, to stop here.